0: It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. If you've been here for our study in Romans, uh, chapter 1 was by no means a short study. We did 17 messages in chapter 1. It was certainly deep, and the basic idea of chapter 1 is that... um, All men, uh, and it's spoken to Gentiles and Gentile pagans, that all men are in need of the gospel and that there is no excuse. Verse number 20, they are without excuse. People who don't accept Christ as their Savior, there's no excuse for it. They can't say they didn't have enough. Now, uh, that's Romans chapter 1. And Paul goes into, as he's writing them, on the tremendous amount of sin that is going on and the perversion of, well, they weren't just Gentiles. They were pagan Gentiles of a life devoid of God and a life devoid of God's value. And so Paul is writing them and helping them to understand uh, that this is what a life devoid of God looks like. And while Paul is writing, you remember the church at Rome, is a church that is in some ways uh, almost divided. That The church at Rome is 50%, if you will, Jews and almost 50% Gentiles. And, and uh, there's, uh, there's some separation that went on there that has gone on there. And Paul is writing them and the Jews in the crowd while he is writing to the Gentiles, it seems from the structure of the sentence or the, the passages, that the Jews that are in the church at Rome, boy, I tell you what, they're like amening and excited and thrilled that Paul is calling out the sin of the Gentiles because the Jews were were um, angered by and um, uh, and very disheartened by the sin of the Gentiles. That's what the Jews felt. It's like when you and I see our culture as our culture begins to degrade and somebody stands up and speaks truth about our culture and you're like, yes, finally, Somebody is saying something. It's kind of the same thing that the Jews had in chapter 1. Yeah, finally, somebody's calling out the sin of these pagan Romans. And then Paul gets to chapter 2, and then he starts calling out the sin of the Jews. And they were way less than excited about that. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's much easier to figure out and to celebrate and to amen the sin in other people's life than the sin in your own life. I have no problem being happy when they talk about other people's problems. But it's far different when they talk about mine. And so Paul then in chapter 2 ends verse, or chapter 2 in verse number 28, where he says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so Paul writes here, and he's saying, hey, guys, you need to understand something, you guys in the church, you Jewish people in the church, that God's not concerned about your nationality, and God's not concerned about your heritage. God's concerned about your heart. And the issue is your heart. And so then Paul goes into chapter 3, which we will read. And and let me say this, chapter one and two were two of the deepest passages, chapters we've studied in the history of Canyon Ridge. And it's going to get deep again in chapter three, verse 20 and following. So you would think if you're just a expositor or a study of the word that the Holy Spirit in his kindness, because he says, my peace, I leave with you, that the Holy Spirit is going to be gracious and give us a, a respite between chapters three, verse number one and verse number 19. But truth be told, and I'm not alone in this, almost everybody that I studied, every commentator that I read, said that the passage that we are looking at today, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, is the most difficult passage or paragraph in the entire book of Romans to understand. And Romans is one of the more difficult books in the Bible to understand. So we are engaged in this morning, if you will, understanding or learning one of the more difficult passages in the entire Bible. Now, if somebody says, oh, I understand it completely, I I probably wouldn't listen to them because it's far deeper than a cursory reading will allow. And you say, well, Pastor, if that's the case, why are we studying it? Well, because at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, we just go verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph through the Bible and we don't skip the hard stuff. I committed uh, almost 19 years ago, 18 years and 11 months ago, that when we study the Bible, we'll go verse by verse, and we won't skip any of the hard stuff. I will tell you this week, I was really regretting that commitment. I wanted to skip it. I wanted to go a different direction, but this is how God would have us to go. The Bible says in verse number 1, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way, chiefly, Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy saying, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then, how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. By no means the easiest of paragraphs. Growing up, I was a big fan of debates, watching opposing people or parties or groups enter into a controlled dialogue with the intent of influencing the other, other person to their way of thinking. I love the interplay between participants, the intellectual dexterity that was demanded, the interdependence needed by both groups. It was both and is both intimidating and exhilarating. I just enjoy debates. In modern history of the U.S., the Average person would probably say, or the average student or professor of debates would say, that the most well known and greatest debates were the Lincoln Douglas debates President Lincoln versus Stephen Douglas happened in 1858 as Douglas was the incumbent senator from Illinois, Lincoln was the challenging senator from Illinois, and they had these debates, seven debates, one in every congressional district in the state of Illinois, and, and it was at the time of the expansion of our country, and Uh, Douglas, who was the Democratic incumbent, was for the expansion of slavery throughout the United States. And Lincoln, who was the Republican candidate, was for the abolishment of slavery. By the way, the abolishment of slavery is born out of a biblical worldview that all men are created equal in God's sights. And Lincoln was a proponent because of his early years of studying the Word of God, I might add, and that was Lincoln's Lincoln's position, and so they debated, and these debates were a testimony to their sharp minds, their strong constitutions, and, and uh, their the fact that they were able to do this seven times, and, and it lasted for three hours, every debate, three hours, so they debated, what, 21 hours over these issues. There are countless numbers of debates that happen every day in our world, from important things like political positions of candidates, to the health care and treatment of a loved one, to theological discussions that will guide one closer or further away from God. We have these debates. There are deep questions, maybe a little bit less important, but still deep questions that we debate. Philosophies of life, how to educate our children. Should we buy the house? Should we buy the car? Or should we not? Then there are the less important debates that we are often much more passionate about. You ever notice you're more passionate about things that matter much less? And we're passionate about some things like the best place to get a hamburger Which if you're at Canyon Ridge, you know that I have the answer and it's not in and out. If Bernie's preaching, he will lead you astray, I promise. But we could debate that, or the best place to get a burrito, or the best place to get a donut. If uh, you're wondering where those places are, let me know. I promise I'll give you good information on every one of them. We often debate favorite sports, like, oh, this is my favorite sport, you know. We often debate even things are a sport, like, is baseball a sport? Probably not. Uh, Is curling a sport? probably not, I guess if baseball is, it might be, it's NASCAR a sport, and so people debate these sports, like why is, why does ESPN have the national spelling bee on it, it's it's the Eastern Sport Network, not the Eastern Spelling Network, and so for those of us that weren't good in spelling growing up, the last thing you want to do is turn on ESPN and see a kid spell a word, he's nine years old, you don't even know what it means, and you couldn't pronounce it if you did. How many of you agree with me on that? I should have heard some more amens there. Don't leave me alone on that one. But we often, we talk about who's the greatest player of all time. And I've heard these debates in chess. Is it Bobby Fischer or Gary Kasparov? I mean, come on. And then in football, are the greatest players? Is it Tom Brady or Jim Brown or pick your player? In baseball, is it Babe Ruth or is it Willie Mays? And people will go back and forth. In basketball, who's the GOAT? Michael Jordan or LeBron James, which doesn't seem like much of an argument to me. It's got to be the guy from my generation, Michael Jordan. And the younger kids are going, y'all are stupid. And so that's why there's a debate. Then there's that annual debate that is long-lasting and quite important. Should candy corn... Be given to innocent, unsuspecting children who've never done anything to deserve such horrific punishments. How many of you like candy corn? How many of you think it's of the devil? Yeah, me too. Me too. It's punishment. We don't always like debates, but we engage in them on a regular basis. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 is really a debate. It's rhetorical. The Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is answering questions that people have, that the Jewish congregation has, before they ask them. He's able, I think God has given him a tremendous amount of insight into understanding what their questions would be, and he asks their questions before they ever even read the letter. And we read those questions and that debate in chapter 3. And we see the first question is in verse number 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God." What's the benefit, here's the question that they're asking, what's the benefit of being a Jew or a Christian? If you're saying Paul in verses 28 and 29, if you're arguing that that God doesn't isn't concerned about the outward things, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but a Jew which is one inwardly. And a circumcision is that of the heart, and not the le- and of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men, but of God. And then they they hear that, and then their question is, well, then why am I a Jew? What's the benefit of being a Jew? What's the benefit of being a Christian? Now, a Jew was a person who was of the first family a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, uh, people who can trace their lineage all the way back to them. They were a follower of the law and the ordinances, the outward ordinances of the law. And so Paul asks this question that is being asked by the folks here. What what is the benefit, what is the profit of being a Jew? Why would I, why would I want to be a Jew? What's the, what's the whole idea? And in this rhetorical nature, Paul is answering these questions. It's not dissimilar from us. How many times have Christians in this room say, what's the benefit of being a Christian? What's the benefit of growing up in a Christian home? Why why do I need to go, I mean, come on, why can't my parents, young young people, those of us who grew up in church, why can't my parents just let me do whatever I want? Why can't I just get lit up on Friday night and hang out with my friends and do my own thing and sleep around? I mean, what's the benefit of being a believer? I mean, I go to church, my family goes to church, my grandfather even built this church, my grandmother played the organ for 40 years, I was baptized by pastor so-and-so, and I don't know that it's benefited me at all. That's the question they're asking. That's the question. I mean, I was born on a Thursday. I was in church the following Sunday. It was C-section, so not the three days away, but 10 days away. I was in church, and I've missed 13 services, 13 Sundays in my 49 years of life have I missed church. 13. I just want to say, sometimes we ask this question, why would I do any of this? Why, why if God is just not intrinsically pleased with my heritage and my, my, my family and who my parents are in the country that I'm from, what's the, what's the advantage? word advantage is, what makes me superior? What, what's, the, what's the favorable position? He uses this word as well. What is the profit? What's the usefulness? Why would I want to do this? The application of this passage concerns every man. If a man is born a Jew or a Christian, he has the right nationality. If he's born a Jew into a Jewish or Christian family, he has the right heritage. If he claims to be a Jew or a Christian and he's still not accepted before God, why? What's the profit? And so Paul answers this question. Why would I be a Jew if there's no prophet and if there's nothing intrinsically beneficial? Why would I be circumcised? Why would I circumcise my children? What's the prophet? And Paul answers that question in verse number two. He says, much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Chiefly, first, above everything else. This first, chiefly, doesn't mean there's a second. It means above everything else, you need to understand that unto you, Jews, Paul is speaking specifically, unto us Christians, we have application for sure. Unto you were committed the oracles of God The word oracles just simply means the word of God Or the declaration of God You are the recipients of the word of God You grew up with the opportunity to hear the word of God You grew up with the opportunity to see God work You grew up with the opportunity to hear the old people Talk about all that that God has done You, You grew up hearing about the things of God he's talking about it's an enormous privilege anyone born in a nation and or a family that has God's word and has the opportunity to take advantage of studying and knowing God's word and living within the framework of obedience to God's word what a phenomenal privilege here's what we so often think like Oh man, the world has so much to offer and and just living in the world, I can do my own thing. I can act however I want. I can go wherever I want and there's no problem with it. Friends, that's a lie. Satan wants to destroy you. You say, well, no, no, he wants to free me. No, 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 sin is never freeing. Sin always brings bondage. It can't do anything but bring bondage. Try to find your freedom in sin and you will find by the time you realize what's happened that you are totally encased in sin and you become an addict to sin and you have no freedom. You are bound to sin and the grace of God alone is the only source of breaking the chain of that sin. But if you're, if, it's like Paul's saying, but if you're, if you grew up with it, if you grew up with the word of God, why would you want that? See, these arguments aren't new. I mean, literally, I've been to like how many, however many thousands of services. I've known thousands of teenagers i 've known thousands of young adults i 've seen hundreds of successful awesome amazing marriages i 've seen a lot of failed Marriages because people won't keep the word of God and in every awesome amazing marriage here's what people say I just want to be obedient to God and what his word says and I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved the church and I'm going to respect and care for my husband like Christ says that I'm supposed to and we're going to work together to the very best of the ability and the grace that God gives us to have this this life that brings pleasure to the Lord and glorifies his name and they have a life that they wouldn't trade for anything in the world and then I talk to people like, I'm doing my own thing. There's no benefit in being a Christian. There's no benefit. I'm, I'll tell you what. I'm, I, right now, these boots were made for walking. And I'm walking right out that door. And I'm doing my own thing. And there's no intrinsic benefit in any of this. And Paul says, you're foolish. And I say, you're foolish. Why? Because Satan, listen to what I'm about to say. Satan can only do three things. Steal. Kill and destroy. He can do nothing else. And he will lie to you because he is the father of lies. He will lie to you on every level. He will lie to you in every way to bring you to the ultimate end of stealing, killing, or destroying you. That is all that he wants to do. There is no freedom in the world. And that's what Paul is helping these Jews to understand. Well, their second objection is found in verse number three. For what if some did not believe? Shall the unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, Yea, let God be true in every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy saying, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Here's their second objection. Well, Paul, if some people reject the gospel, doesn't that mean there's no power in the gospel? Paul, if, if some people reject the gospel, doesn't that mean there's no power in the gospel? I mean, verse number 3, for if some did not believe, that means just did not trust or rely on God. They just failed to put their faith in God. I mean, Paul, if, and then he goes on and he uses a bigger word in verse number 3. Shall their unbelief, that is a distrust, it's an active distrust. What do you mean active distrust? Well, there's things all the time that we don't trust in all over. We just don't know. It's not. It's, it, it would be what is called passive distrust, like we don't trust in certain things. And then there's active distrust. We know something, we, uh, we, we're aware of something, but we never trust that it's really going to come to pass. We never trust that it's going to be able to, to accomplish what it promises to accomplish. Let me illustrate it this way. There's, there's a lot of win- that I don't trust, but I have an active distrust for everything that is sold on TV. Like, like it it might even work. I'm not saying they don't work, but when they work, I'm like surprised. Like, like, you know, if you got me like, Hey, as seen on TV, sham. Wow. Yeah. I don't believe that. Don't believe it's going to work. The mop, you know, the mop that's on TV that'll keep your whole house clean all the time, forever. All you have to do is like put it in this bucket three times and then hire somebody to come in and use it. And, and it'll be great. I have an active, you get, you get what I'm saying, it's the idea. I have an active distrust for that. Meaning, you could show me that, but I have an active distrust of it. Like, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. Oh, let me illustrate it this way, all right? Uh, Zane Garza is our new youth director, youth pastor, and he was making some youth visits yesterday. And one of the things that Bernie started years ago was when teenagers visit our church, he takes them a gift. And, and I don't know, he started giving them Coke or Dr Pepper, a bottle of Coke or Dr Pepper, which, parents, I'm sorry, I have tried to get rid of him for years and he's still here. Uh, no, I'm totally I mean, really. No, I'm totally kidding, totally kidding, but. Uh, Bernie uh, is also a spendthrift, so he found a sale on Coke and Dr. Pepper about a year ago through COVID, and he bought like a thousand cases of Coke, and Zane had some in his desk yesterday, and I'm in the other side of the office, but I could see the two of them whispering, and whenever people whisper, I want to find out why, how many of you are like me? I don't ever, if you whisper, hey, don't whisper around me, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it awkward. I want to find, so I'm like, what are you guys whispering about? And Zane kind of turns red, and, and Bernie's like, oh, nothing, 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 nothing. I'm like, no, 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 tell us. What are you whispering about? And Bernie goes, well, I mean, these cokes are a year old. And we don't think they're any good. I'm like, oh, they don't go bad. They'll be fine. Coke never goes bad. You know, it'll cook the lining of your stomach. It'll be fine. Oh, no, Pastor, Coke goes bad. No, it doesn't. I distrusted actively what he said, and I had to be proven wrong. And so we had a little staff. um, We don't bet because we're Baptists. um, Wager. and i had to eat i have to eat something that i detest he was going to have to bernie was going to have to drink coffee if he lost for 2 days without sweetener or any like french vanilla creamer and uh, so so the test was is there still fizz in the coke and my 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 hypothesis was that it's fine just give it to the kids they'll never know the difference and so when zane unscrewed the top and it went like I began to trust Bernie's word and then Zane tasted it and Zane was like, I'm gonna keep my opinion to myself till everybody else does. And, and then John Schifus, who was single for like 39 years um, and lived on his own and ate only macaroni and cheese and Taco Bell for about 14 years. John started drinking it and God prayed for his wife, John's wife, but John started drinking. He's like, hey, this is pretty good. I mean, John's just down in this thing. And I'm like, oh, it must not be bad. I tasted that thing. It tasted like Coke Kool Aid. I mean, there was no fizz at all. It was absolutely disgusting. Coke without fizz is the worst thing ever. And so, but I'm going to keep quiet because hopefully Bernie will go, oh, yeah, Pastor, you won. And so Bernie tasted and spit it out, and I was like, oh, so I lost. But here's the point. I had unbelief. I had active distrust in his word. Now, I try to illustrate that with something that's comical, but that's the idea of what the Jews were doing. It didn't matter what God said. They had active distrust for the Lord. And it would be foolish like this, like me tasting that soda where there is no fizz and everybody else tasting that soda where there is no fizz and going, no, it's got a lot of fizz. No, we, we, we tasted it. We saw it. We know it has none. No, no, it, it has some. <sighs> taste it again. And they taste it and they're like, oh, no, it's good. No, it's not good. It's fizzless soda. The reason for the soda is the fizz and the 12 cups of sugar in every ounce. But that's the reason for it. It's nasty soda. No, 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 it's good for me. Good for me. That's the word. No matter what was said, no matter what was proven, they just actively didn't believe it. They just wouldn't believe it. You ever talk to somebody? You're a Christian. They profess to be a Christian. Their life is lost. I mean, they're, they're destroying their life. You can look and see their life, and you can go, dude, your life is in total opposition to the peace that the Bible offers, and the end product of your life is going to be destruction. Turn around now. Find hope now. Find encouragement now. And this is what they say I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm totally fine right now. Nothing's wrong with what I'm doing or this. I'm okay standing before God doing this. You know why that is? Verse number three. They did not believe, their unbelief. Will their unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? So their unbelief, so they're asking the question, the Jews are asking the question, well, some of these people are Jews and they don't believe. Does that mean the gospel has no power? I mean, because God promised the children of Israel, God promised the people... Of Israel, that they are or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their seed would have a special place, and, and their seed would be close to him, and they would always love God, and they would always be His people. I mean, will will their walking away from God? Does that mean that God's grace and God's power is without effect, or does that mean that God's grace is useless because somebody doesn't believe? That's what they're asking. I mean, isn't God voiding his promise if there are consequences for their unbelief? Because he promised that we're his chosen people. He promised that we'll always be special. So isn't he violating his word? And Paul, in verse number four... Now I'm not going to yell, but imagine him yelling here. God forbid. Word means no. May it never be. Let it never happen. But the truth of the matter is this, it means much more than that. This is the strongest negative Greek expression. So Paul take the strongest English expression for no. That's what Paul is using here, just just to help you understand what he's saying there. Like, no, in no way, no. And it carried a connotation of impossibility. So so, so read verse number 3 this way. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God or the faithfulness of God? Does their unbelief make God's faithfulness useless or without effect? It's like Paul is saying this way. That's an absolute impossibility, or absolutely not, or no way. When I was a kid, we'd say, no way, no how. God forbid. And he goes on, let God be true. Word true means sincere, one who cannot lie. God can't lie. The Bible says in the book of Titus chapter 1, verse number 2, In hope of eternal life, the word hope means expectation and looking forward to. In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie. The promises of God's word are 100% honest, 100% of the time. He cannot lie. Every word he has said will come to pass. Every word he said that has al- that would already come to pass already has. Make no mistake about it. He cannot lie. His word is absolute. There is no changing that. And that's what Paul is saying. God forbid. No, let God be true. And every man, a liar, or let every man on this planet stand up against God and and if they oppose God, if they oppose His Word, they are all liars. But God will be found true. God will be found just. God will be found verifiable. You can take anything in the world, you put that in opposition to God, and it's a lie. God's Word is true. God is faithful. His word and his promise of salvation will stand even if every man lies about believing in God and lies about giving his heart to Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God will prove his word. He will be justified. He will be proven faithful. It might not seem it right now. Our world, it seems like, is is degenerating at an accelerated rate Every time you turn on the news, it's some new thing. and There was, a, there was a, a, a pro-abortion justice march yesterday. People think that it's just and they are justified to abort as many children as they possibly can. Yet God is the giver of life and they stand in opposition to God and they raise their fists towards God. And, and, and people, we sometimes look at that and go, is there ever going to be an end of the nonsense? And the answer to that question is, yes, there will. Why? Because God is true and he will be justified, and God is true. He will prove his word to be true. Paul goes on, God forbid, yea, let God be true, and every man a liar, as is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy saying, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Well, how can you be justified in your sayings, and overcome when you're judged only by the grace of Jesus Christ? You cannot overcome apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot overcome apart from his work on Calvary's cross. You cannot overcome, and this is the idea, the, the, the big idea of this text. You cannot overcome independent of Christ. God is faithful, and God alone saves, and God never voids his promises. He will keep them, and if he promised to save you, he will. John chapter 3, verse number 37 Jesus said, All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise or in no way cast out. Romans chapter 10, verse number 13, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 4, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, he loved us. His mercy is so rich. He has such great Magos, huge love, mega love for us. Even when we were dead in, trespass, in, in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's what Paul is saying to the Jews. It's not of you. You're saved by grace and not of yourselves. Your salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus and the good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. And Paul is just saying God keeps his word. He never avoids his word. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're looking at 10,000 external reasons why you're, why you're not saved. And you know, oh, I saw this person and I heard about this person who's a Christian and I read about this pastor online and I heard about this thing over here or that thing over there. Can I tell you that all those things are probably true and no one's going to try to defend sin at this place, at this church or any Bible preaching church ever. I'm going to tell you that for sure. There's not a chance that anyone's going to try to do that, but can I tell you that they their unbelief, that their rejection of the truth doesn't diminish the truth in the slightest way, that the truth of God is the truth of God and he will save you. And just because somebody else doesn't believe and somebody else doesn't walk with God doesn't give you the freedom to walk away or to reject God. It's a greater opportunity and a greater need for you to accept the truth of God's word and to live in obedience to it. And then the third Objection in this debate is found in verse 5 to 8. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Let me deal briefly with that parenthetical statement, that parentheses in verse number 8. As we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, there's a lot of people from different uh, churches in here and have joined our church from other churches and many people in here and sometimes people just say stuff that especially about leaders in the church and preachers and can I just tell you it's just not true It's just a slanderous, oftentimes a slanderous report. I'm not saying it's never true, but the Bible says only in the mouth of two or three witnesses, and that means two or three verifiable witnesses, two or three honest witnesses, should you ever hear a report, not just somebody under cover of darkness who hasn't brought something up to an individual, should you ever talk. And Paul says we're being slanderously reported. They're saying things about us with the intent to hurt our ministry. People are saying that we're saying you can just do whatever you want, live however you want to live, and and you'll be fine that's what the report was and paul says that's slanderous we would never preach that we would never teach that i've been preaching the bible 29 years and i've had more than a few people say i heard you believe this i'm like i don't believe it well they said you did well i don't know what they said but i know i don't believe it well they said you did well i don't well they said you did well i don't well they said you did, well, I well, said you did and i don't And I'm like i enjoy this junior high conversation but can we move on i don't believe that Can I just tell you to give spiritual leaders the benefit of the doubt or at least the benefit of a conversation where you look them square in the eye and you have enough backbone and adulthood about yourself to ask them what they believe? And not listen to slanderous gossip. And that's true of the person sitting next to you. I've seen marriages ruined because somebody gossiped to one spouse about another spouse. And before you know it, those seeds of dissension were, were there. And now the marriage is, is in, in shambles because of some gossip. The Bible says blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the friend makers. Unless so are the people that come in and try to bring resolution, not division. You say, well, what does that have to do with our point? It's there, so I needed to say something about it. I didn't want you going home going, I wonder what that parenthesis is about. But the bigger point here that Paul is making outside of the parenthetical statement is this. If my sin ultimately allows God to be glorified, why should I be punished? If my sin allows God to be glorified... Why should I be punished? In verse number five. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. The word unrighteous in verse number five. If our unrighteousness, our failure to obey God's moral law, if if us doing our own thing and ignoring the commands of God, if that commends or demonstrates or proves the righteousness of God. Here, this word righteousness means faithfulness. It's similar to the word that we would have read in verse number three, the faith of God. It it, it demonstrates his faithfulness, God's righteousness and his faithfulness are part of his own nature. So they're asking, if I sin and it shows the character of God and the faithfulness of God, then why? what's wrong with that? Why is God taking vengeance on me? Why is God judging me if I showed God how aw- the world how awesome God was? Because I sinned. It, it's not dissimilar from the argument of Romans six one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul uses this word in verse number 6. He uses it in Romans 6 two as well. God forbid. Again, that strongest negative Greek word that can be stated. No, never away with such a thought. No, God is not unrighteous for, for taking vengeance or judging man when man openly sins. God forbid. If God was unrighteous, then how would he judge the world? Because God is glorified when he forgives. And God is glorified when his mercy is seen. And God is glorified when his grace is made known to the masses. But can I tell you the greatest grace of God is a believer of God living an obedient life to the word of God, an obedient life to the principles and precepts of the word of God? Growing up, I would often hear speakers tell their scandalous life story of how evil and wicked they were. And then we talk about the fact that they did this and they did that and they smoked more crack than, you know, a plumbing company. I mean, they it, it just just... It you guys are slow today. I thought I'd throw that one in there, not in my notes. They just... They, they, they just man, I, let me tell you how bad my life was. I killed every dog in the neighborhood and everybody that liked the dog, and they just went on for days talking about how bad they were. And then they, you know, and then one night I was walking down the street and I tripped on a skateboard and I fell onto a gospel track and I passed out and I woke up and what I saw was the cross right there. I repented and trusted Jesus as my Savior, and that's just awesome, man. Let me tell you. And that's great. If that's true, that's great. Praise the Lord for his grace and his mercy. And people are like, oh, man, I want a testimony like that. I just, man, I, I know some Christian teenagers have been tripping themselves with gospel tracks everywhere. Just trying to figure it like, I want that story. And Paul's like, dude, that's the dumbest story ever. The great grace of God is seen not in the person that stumbles into Jesus, if you will. I'm using human terms here. The greatest story ever seen is the person who willfully chooses by the grace of God to day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, to live for Christ and doesn't go into the world, doesn't taste the the nastiness of sin, the depravity of a godless lifestyle. The greatest grace of God is seen in the consistent following of Jesus Christ every single day of a person's life. Yes. And I'm not opposed. I love those stories of great grace and, and radio shows and podcasts like Unshackled. They're awesome. They're wonderful. But can I tell you the stories I want are the stories of of, uh, of guys like Don Sisk who have been faithful servants of the Lord for 75, 80 years just faithfully every single week living for Christ. And they don't understand the scars of sin. And they've never been bitten by the lies of Satan. And they've never fallen prey to that God God, give us a generation of young people and old people who don't run into the world to taste of its its nastiness, but stay close to the fountain of grace and the goodness of God and find their peace and their comfort and their their joy in Jesus Christ alone. That's what saying. God for For if the truth of God, verse 7, hath abounded more through my lie unto his glory. They're actually saying, if I lie, God's glorified. And if I bring God glory, why am I judged? I mean, if, I, I've had people say this to me. If, if, if I fall in sin and I come out of sin, then man, God's really glorified. Here's the deal, bro. You don't get to determine what glorifies God. God determines what glorifies God, and what glorifies him is a holy life. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter, be ye holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That's what brings him honor. What brings us honor is talking about our story. It's talking about where we went, what we've done. Oh, I was on my last leg, and... I was holding on by a string, and I just came back, and that brings God glory. No, 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 no. What brings God glory is the daily, consistent, faithful service and obedience to his word. i got to be done. Verse number 8. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. This is what Paul says. If you're saying, let us do evil that good may come, let us sin, God God equates disobedience, sin, and evil, all is the same thing. So you cursing at your kids is evil. No, hear what I just said. You cursing at your kids, that's evil. I'll just stay here for a second because you didn't get it. You cursing at your kids, that's evil. Well, that's the way I was raised. So? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You yelling at your parents, evil. He's just helping you with some relationship this morning. You humping some dude on Friday night, Evil. You trying to get some girl drunk so you can get with her? Evil. You clubbing? Evil. Yeah, you listening to Little Nas? Evil. It's evil. I mean, I could go on. I feel like it because you're not giving me enough amen, so I feel like you're not listening. Oh, see, you should have said amen. You lying to your boss and telling him you're sick when you're not sick, evil. But I I really want to go hang out with some friends that were in town. Yeah, that's called a lie. Evil. You see, I don't think God cares about it. Really, because he uses the actual word lie. I mean, like it's the actual word. It's in the verse. It's not even even applying it. It's the actual word. You claiming your dog on your taxes, evil. Though some of y'all spend more money on your dogs than you do your kids, that's evil. You say, well, what would you do? Get a different dog. What do I do with this one? Wish him well. Not all dogs go to heaven. Yours might. Probably not. You say, don't you love your dog? I do. I mean, like like as far as loving a dog can take you. Like he sleeps on the ground and eats crummy food off the floor. I would never eat it, but yeah, I love him. That was funny, but y'all didn't get it. men's retreat. ah, That's probably not evil, but I want to say it just to get you to go. It's not. Don't slanderously report me evil let us do evil and if we do evil then some good's going to come about it paul this is what paul says whose damnation is just if you do that then your damnation and the word damnation just is a sentence of punishment or condemnation it has a, a prescribed certain consequence to it whose damnation is just Um, we got a couple guys who've been in ministry a long time here. Pastor tonnell and I, the other day, we were um, we we're just talking about some stuff, ministry related, and some of the rest of you would probably be able to do this. And we talked about people making decisions, some people that we know together, and and. And I talked about something, and he goes, oh, did this happen? I said, yeah. And then did this happen? Oh, yeah. And we just went back and forth without knowing the, the, the circumstances, like both of us, and we're able to describe what happened, uh, like exactly what happened. I mean, like, exactly what happened. I mean, the times are different, the clothes are different, the days are different, all of that. The people are different, the parties are different, but you're able to describe, and you're able to describe, listen to me, the consequences of it as well. Why? Because once you begin to see people screw up their lives so badly, you understand the consequence of their decision. You say, well, God is judging them. He is going to judge them. But most of the time, the, the judgment of God is just simply to take his hands off you and let you experience the end state of sin. Like you wanted to follow Satan? Okay, there you go. There you go. You can do it. Whose damnation? The consequence is Determined. A man may exclaim, a God of love can't take vengeance on me, though. A God of love can't damn me, the word damnation. A God of love cannot damn me, that's not just. He's a loving God. And Boy, don't we hear that in our day. But love expressed unjustly is not love, it's license. It's indulgence. It's like if you love your children, the Bible says you'll chase in your children if you love them. If you love your children, you don't let them do whatever they want to do. You don't let your children decide when they're going to eat and when they're going to brush their teeth and when they're going to get in the car and when they're going to go to bed and when they're going to get up and what they're going to wear. No, you're the parent, and love says, no, 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 foolishness is bound in your heart, and I will teach you these things, and you will do these things for the betterment of yourself and society. Somebody says, well, they're a human being, and they have an opinion. They are a human being and they have an opinion and when they pay for their own stuff, they can express that opinion in somebody else's house. Love expressed unjustly is not love, it's license, it's indulgence. And God's love, who is the author of love and the epitome of love and the picture of love, God's love is perfect and it's absolute and it's unbiased and it's impartial and it never changes. Jews understood his character as judge from the earliest part of scripture, Genesis 18, 25, that he is the judge of the world. And they understood in scripture that he loves them and he he will judge them and he will judge us with unbiased judgment. Well, how can he judge me? Because the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. Because God has love for all mankind. John three sixteen, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sin of the whole world. He is the substitutionary payment. That's what the word propitiation means. A payment had to be made for your sin. And the only one who could pay the payment for your sin is Jesus Christ. You can't even pay the payment for your sin if you were to die and reject god and go to hell you're going to hell you say i'll pay my own way you can never pay the price you'll be in hell for a million years and the price is identical you'll be in hell for a billion years and the price doesn't drop you never make a cent of a of an impact on your debt to god by going to hell the only way that debt is satisfied is by the shed blood of jesus christ And God can't allow indulgence. And God can't allow license. God is loving and God is kind. And if you reject Him, here's what He's saying in verse number eight that your damnation is just. It's just. And you won't. Find an escape. Because God is just. That's why I titled this message, The Just Judge. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the just judge. Come to Christ today. Come to Jesus today. Get saved today. He's the just judge. And you have to understand that his justice demands that you repent It means to agree with God that you've sinned against Him. That you repent and receive Him as Savior. Well, I think I might get out. You won't get out. I think He might make an exception. He won't make an exception. Why? Justice never makes an exception. You say, yes, but He's merciful. Yes, He is merciful until you stand before Him as the final judge. And when you stand before Him you'll have to answer whether or not you accepted him as your savior and if you rejected him as your savior he will judge you and it will cost you and you will spend eternity in hell regardless of your debates regardless of your arguments that are not new they've been going on forever the apostle Paul answers every uh, not every argument but these three powerful arguments what's the benefit of being a Christian or a Jew if some reject the gospel does that mean the gospel is of no power and then our final question if i sin if my sin ultimately brings glory to god why does not he just allow me to do it why would i have to be punished you have to be punished because he's a just judge and the only way that you're not going to be punished eternally for your sin is if you accept jesus christ as your personal lord and savior come to him today he is the just judge and if you're a believer My heart is so heavy for believers that think they can sin and that the grace of God will just overlook it. His grace doesn't overlook it because His justice won't allow it. He allows you to repent and He shows mercy. Praise His holy name. He shows mercy when we come back to Him. But if we are resistant and rebellious, there is a price that has to be paid. And the damnation is just. Why? Because the judge is just. Father, bless our time in the word. We're so thankful for this challenging passage for sure, but insightful indeed. And I pray that you'd help us today, Lord, as we Desire to know you better and learn more from your word and to learn more about you and your character. I pray that you would help us to understand you are a just judge. Lord, I pray for every Christian today that they will inspect their own heart and life. And Father, I pray you'll bring an overwhelming sense of conviction to their soul that Satan and the world have nothing to offer. And that you and you alone are just. And you and you alone are holy. And that we must live for you. And that's the greatest joy. And that's the greatest peace. And that's the greatest contentment. And even when are struggles at it, Lord, it's far greater than the penalty of a life of sin. And, Father, I pray for those who don't know you as Savior today. I pray that today they would repent and trust you as their Savior. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you're a believer and you know without a doubt that heaven's your home, and we're certainly not here to try to talk anybody out of that, you know without a doubt that heaven's your home. You've repented and trusted Jesus. But you say, Pastor, the message spoke to me today. I've been dabbling in the world, or maybe I've even been asking some of those questions. Pastor, would you pray for me this morning that I'd find hope and encouragement in the Lord today? If that's you, would you signify that with an uplifted hand? Pastor, would you pray for me today that I would just find hope and encouragement in the Lord? God bless you. In this world we live, it's easy to get so discouraged. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Chadwick, truth be told, I'm not a believer. And I've been thinking God's gonna give me an out but I see through the scripture that I will stand before him as judge. Pastor, would you pray for me? I need to get saved. I need to put my trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you today, would you signify that with an uplifted hand? Pastor, would you pray for me? Oh, dear friend, come to Jesus. He's the just judge. There is not, some of you right now this morning, right now, I'm not trying to strong arm you. I'm just gonna tell you I know what's going on. In your heart, you're like, should I, should I not? Should I, should I not? Should I, should I not? Just trust in Jesus today. I promise you, he's a good God. He's a loving father that will forgive your sin. You'll never regret the decision to accept Jesus Christ. I can't encourage you enough to come to Christ today by repentance and asking him to come into your heart and save you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand. If you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you want to come forward, Pastor Bernie and I will be here. We have counselors available. We also have counselors in the back. If you say, I'd rather talk to somebody in the back, I don't want anybody to see me up front, totally fine with that. We have somebody in the back who can take the Bible and show you from God's word how heaven could be your home, answer any questions or even pray with you, whatever the need is. We have people that want to help you walk with God. And then Christians, I encourage you to come. Spend some time at the altar. However God's spoken to your heart, we encourage you to be yielded to him. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.